Hello, Tisha. Hi, Jen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to say, thank you for bringing bags to Value Village for me today because oh. that is something that I am horrible at. It is horrible, first off, for me to fill the bags. I never get that done, but then they never, ever, ever go anywhere. Like, I'm that thing, like, have you seen going around social media, like, about, you know, I go all day and fill all the bags and then leave them in my car for six months while I drive around with them. Yes. Mine barely make it to the car. I am definitely better about it. So I actually had gone to the donation center earlier this week, yesterday, actually. Yes. And then I went there today with your stuff and it's the same kid working. Uh-huh. So he's like, oh, hey, you cleaning out your closets? And I was like, actually, <laughs> this is my fun stuff. And he's like, so she's cleaning out her closet. I'm like, mm, guest room. Her mother's coming to visit. <laughs> And he's like, well, thank you so much for bringing your friend's stuff here. He's like, how did you get roped into that? I'm like, you don't get it. I'm not going to get into it. We're like, we're women and we're moms and we're friends and we help each other out. That's just like, that's how we care about each other. I recognize her shortcomings as far as this goes. So <laughs> yeah, but he's like, you know, and some 18 year old kid who's like, who like has no clue story you're doing this for your friend well and then the funny thing is that you're the second person who helped me um bring stuff to value village <laughs> this week <laughs> right you know what but I think I think there's something to be said for like finding your people mm-hmm. but also knowing like who to ask for what yeah because your friends are going to have different strengths Totally. And like, if you need me to take stuff to VV, like you need someone to do that. I'm your girl. I will do that. Well, I know after the one time that you came and like <laughs> helped me like go through closets, like go through Warren's closet, you were like, John's going to Value Village tomorrow. She, yeah, so sh- I should take these bags. Right. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But like, maybe don't ask me to cook you a meal. Cause I don't cook. That's okay. You know, yeah. but like, that's, I think that's like part of like, yes, people should just offer support, of course. Yes. But like, sometimes but, you do need to ask and like, there's like an art, like knowing who to ask for what. Well, and, and there's certain things like something like that, you wouldn't even like, how would you know that that would be something that I could meet, I could use? Like the other no. girl, the other girlfriend happened to mention it when we were leaving our workout that that's where she was going. And I was like, oh, I have a bag. Can I like toss it in your car? <laughs> <laughs> so apparently everyone's clearing out their stuff. I guess. Besides that, the other thing I did today was like write some notes about the Patreon episode that we're about to record. Oh, yes. Record that later on tonight. And I'm going to be telling one of my stories. And it's a lot easier to be the listener. (laughs) Well, it is. I mean, I'm the listener today. So like we are in very different roles or you're in a different role. Yeah. But I, I listen to some podcasts that you can tell that they've had to do a lot of research about yes where I'm like oh I don't I mean I don't do any research I actually frankly when it comes to a lot of our guests other than having like the generalized like topic or story I don't look into them very much because I kind of feel like it benefits to have somebody like be hearing it for the first time right yeah generally you do all of that that research and stuff unless it's somebody that 
I know who I've asked. Yeah, exactly. And like, we've, you know, we've recorded enough of these episodes and on several occasions, I've kind of alluded to having had childhood trauma or having had a traumatic childhood and, um, but I never really elaborate. So on Patreon, I'm going to get into that a little bit. And for those of you who don't know what Patreon is, that is a paid subscription where you can choose the level of membership that you'd like. And we have additional content on there. And we're aiming to put out like one more regular length episode monthly. And then also as we have good behind the scenes kind of content that will yeah. go there as well. Yeah. Um, early releases. Is- early releases. We're talking with guests about potentially doing some giveaways specifically mm-hmm. for the Patreon. So yes. join us over there. And it's, it's a monthly thing. You could join for one month and, and be done or you can hang around. And I think if you're on there for three or four months, you get a, a sticker, you get copies of our books. Yes. Yep. So there's like some that. incentive for sticking around. Yeah. And, and when we get more people on there, you guys might even get some more input on to what kinds of topics and people we bring on. Yeah. So check it out check it right out, after yes. you listen to this episode. Yes. Krista is a really, she was somebody who I remember you knew and followed, I think knew like in, in Instagram since yes. followed and wanted to talk to and mm-hmm. I did not know much about, but she is a really special woman and has like a really unique, really kind of special is the only word I can think of energy. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's a harder topic. So if you're not down for something like that, maybe pin it for another time, download it for us. Yep. But uh, listen to it when you're kind of in a better frame of mind for it. But yeah, and- she it does deal with suicide loss. So that could be certainly difficult for some people. Absolutely. So take care of yourself. We love to know what you think about the episodes. So, you know, slide into our DMs, leave us reviews and ratings, all of that stuff helps more people find us, share with people who you think an episode or all of them might benefit. And we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hi, I'm Jen, and welcome back to Now What? I'm Tisha. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to be talking to Krista today, who I have to say that I'm so excited to have. She's someone who I've followed on Instagram for quite some time, and I have so much respect for her. And she was pretty high on my list of people that I wanted to like send a pitch out to and hope that they accepted. And I was so excited when she did and she's here. So I want to thank you, Krista, so much for being here. She's fangirling. Welcome. I'm fangirling. Yep. Um, And Krista lives in Alberta. She is a um, mind body coach, as well as a joyful living educator, which I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about what that means exactly. Um, And she's also a mother of three, one of whom she refers to as being forever 23. And um, that is one of the things that we're going to be talking a little bit about today. And she's going to share her story with us. Is there anything else that I kind of left out that you think we should know about you? Nope. I'm good. Just happy to have a real conversation with you. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you said that because it's hard to come by real conversations sometimes. Mm. And, you know, COVID has put such a disconnect between people as well, where you're not necessarily going out and hanging out in a restaurant and having lengthy conversations with people and, you know, having people hold space for each other. So it is important and it does feel good when we have these conversations, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely uninterested in BS and fake and superficial. It's just not my thing kind of socially awkward like you know I'm not really a person to get to invite to a party unless you can handle like deep diving into like you know soul stretching stuff (laughs) (laughs) really strong introvert and I really don't go out a whole lot I work from home and I'm grateful for the online world I have met incredible women from all corners of the world online and not just women but primarily women Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm used to having wonderful conversations online. It's kind of a blessing of COVID. It's it's like an isolation, but a connectivity, I feel like, across the world that's kind of happening at the same time. And I know we really are thankful for the podcast, for the connection it's given us outside of the news cycle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't watch news. My husband does. So I, there's never a chance that I'm going to not know of something that I should know. Right. I don't watch the news. Otherwise I end up on the couch, pulling the covers over my head. Um, so I've had to really learn as a highly sensitive, anxious human, how to really protect myself so that I can keep engaging in the world in meaningful ways. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I actually like just even from this, I have so many questions for you, but I feel like we should maybe clue our listeners in to a little bit of your story. And then I will, they, cause they will make more sense in the context of our conversation. <laughs> okay. What would you like to, me to share about? As we all do, our lives are so multifaceted and we have all of these components that kind of lead up to where we are now, right? And I know that on your website, which is a lifeinprogress.com, correct? Dot .ca, a lifeinprogress.ca, we'll fix that. Um, <laughs> you have like a lengthy bio in there. And I was like, wow, like she's, you've had so many life experiences. One of the things, yeah, we kind of wanted to talk about was sort of the last few years, if that's okay, if you feel like you want to build up to that from like even meeting your husband or whatever, we'll leave that to you. Okay. Yeah. Wherever you want to start. Wherever you're sort of comfortable starting. How's that? Sure. All right. I will start with meeting my husband and life partner. So I met him when I was 23 in the laundry room of a university in Quebec. We, I had traveled on the Greyhound, which doesn't, I don't think it exists anymore, but it took like half days to yeah. get from Alberta to Quebec and they lost my luggage. So I just had to change the clothes in my backpack. And so I pretty much had to go straight down to the laundry room. And the only other person there was this guy and he became my husband. And within two weeks after meeting him, at first I thought he was kind of like this flirty womanizer type and I was kind of not interested and within two weeks I was like oh he's my husband so we have been together 28 years we just celebrated our 27th anniversary in August and 
I'm so grateful for him, but we never could have imagined what life was going to be like, you know, all the hard, hard, hard stuff, lots of beauty, Mm -hmm. and but hard stuff that we would have ran from if we could have. Yes. But I'm grateful that we have managed to move towards each other in trauma. So two years, almost two years ago, our son, he was 23 at the time. His name is Jairus and I adore him and I love him. And it feels important to me to, I have to keep practicing my language around this. And I'm sure Jen knows because you've lost your husband, but I, I have to practice when you lose a child, you have to practice and try on language for size because it's really, really hard. So I, I just practice. So right now I, it feels important to me to say, I di- didn't just love him in the past. I love him today. Still love him. Um, yeah. yeah. So Jairus, um, he, he was a highly sensitive soul, like his mom struggled with really intense anxiety. He had severe depression. It was treatment resistant. So in the end, he tried everything that was available. So beyond medication, you know, at, at first he, he tried through lifestyle and nutrition and he had really good friends. He was a talented, creative person. He had his own small business called Odabi Design. And so I have a scholarship. I created a scholarship in his name and it's called the Odabi Design Scholarship. He had, I think I said, wonderful friends. He you know, we loved him. His sisters loved him. He loved his sisters. And, but he suffered. He struggled hard. So three years ago, I guess we, I mean, it's a, it was lots of years of, you know, sleeping with our cell phone on beside our bed every night because we just didn't know. We just, yeah, we needed it on. Anyway, in 2019, Jairus wrote, or in 2018, actually, he told me he was going to die. And he, we fought about it and cried about it. And he, he wouldn't tell me how he was going to die, but he had a plan and really there was nothing I could do about it. And I tried. Imagine what that's like to hear as a parent. He and I were really close. And I, I think I knew him better than anybody else on this planet. And that was a privilege. I was also the person that he poured out his pain and rage on. He shared his hope and longing and fear and rage and all of it with me. And I just sat here in the living room and I tried to hold it for him. Mm -hmm. So he told me what he expected after he died. And anyway, it's kind of, it's a, messy story and uh but we fought for him we fought with everything that we had and three days after his final treatment he ended his life I had watched hope drain from him dealing with our medical system and a really I think a bullying and dysfunctional law enforcement, so specifically the RCMP in Canada, because we dealt with Edmonton police who were really wonderful, compassionate, helpful, but they have training in mental health and the RCMP do not. Oh, that's interesting. And it's, it's something that I'm, I don't have it in me right now to fight for. Yeah. To advocate for that. I'm, putting energy elsewhere, but it's a, it's a really important, it's a huge problem in Canada. I think it's a huge problem in general that police are called to 
situations where it should be counselors and therapists and, you know. Yeah, it adds layers of trauma to something that is already devastating. Mm -hmm. So um, we fought for Jairus and he, okay, I'm gonna wind this up. So he wrote out his will, he tried to die the first time, he didn't succeed. So I went and cleaned up the rope that he had used and helped him clean out his apartment and moved him home. And just a lot of really, really hard, hard things happened. Mm -hmm. And really trying. Yeah. And he, he was trying to, and I, I feel like it's important to tell people that, you know, and I, obviously we can't speak for every person who dies by suicide, but Jairus wanted to live. He didn't want to die, but he didn't know how anymore to live. He didn't see any hope and his suffering was so intense. And there, you know, there's a lot of lip service paid to the idea of mental health talk, like talk about it and ask for help. But you, I was screaming for help. And where was it? It's really easy to put on little, like, you know, whatever those are called, like on Facebook, where you put your little bell talk day, like thing uh, around yeah. it. And it pisses me off. I'm like, I don't think we're telling the truth. How is this actually helping? Yeah. Like people are falling through the cracks all the time. And it's really horrific what we're dealing with when you love a young person who's asking for help and the way that they're treated. And I know that for myself, I, I really try to be careful what I say because I don't want other people to lose hope. And it's mm -hmm. a dilemma, yeah. you know? Truth-telling is important to advocate for change. And also, I don't want to be a voice that destroys hope for another young person who was hoping that the system is going to help them. Yeah. And sometimes it does. So, yeah. So, Jairus right. um, died October 23rd, 2019. So, we're just coming up on the two-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. Hard. And hard isn't really good, you know, a good descriptor. I don't think there's any descriptor. You just don't have a better word. Yeah, I mean, unless somebody has dealt with a traumatic loss and is going through that year too. I don't know. I don't, I don't think there are words to, to explain to someone. No, and there were moments I wasn't sure I could survive it for sure. I sympathize with that. Yeah. I have a really good support system of friends and honestly, a supportive community for the most part. And my husband and I, that's where I guess I was trying to say earlier, like, I'm so grateful that we move towards each other in the face of this, because statistically marriages don't, it's pretty hard. A loss you. of a child like that. I And then to suicide. And, but the way that my girls hold together to love their brother to the very end and the way that they've pulled together to love each other I'm just so proud of them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it speaks to you and your husband as well and, and what you have modeled for them and shown them and, and the love that you've given them, I think. I mean, I think there's an inherent empathy in, in us, but it needs to be fostered. And Yeah, it's complicated and hard sometimes because actually I don't even know if you guys have children or the ages. We have young children. Our kids are both six and nine. They're the same age. 
I don't know. Yeah, it's complicated because online, honestly, it's tricky. There's stuff that can feel shaming. Like on the one hand, okay, I'll give you an example. I have some girlfriends whose oldest are just leaving to university right now. And they're experiencing that grief and transition. And, and you know, I, I believe that the fact that their children are ready to fly on their own is a wonderful sign that they are well attached and they feel safe, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, but what about the kids who are struggling? Does that mean you didn't do a good job as a parent? What if they need more support? What if they have challenges that don't make it easy for them to fly? Like, is that on you? Because it seems like it is, like if we believe rhetoric. So it's really humbling. First of all, I think parenting is hard on the ego. In oh my gosh. Yep. <laughs> we can all agree to that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, my kids are my favorite people. They are cool and wise and creative and I like them. I like them a lot as humans. <laughs> um, yes. And also they're hard on the ego, but this type of experience and loss is so humbling and hard. It's rough. You know, it is it, rough. It's like, multiplying and obviously my my experience is different but I just think from the traumatic aspect of it it's it's like multiplying how hard parenting is by infinity yeah to reference something that my children talk about all the time Um, it's it's this by infinity you know it just it it takes it you enter into a whole other class I think of something that's already really goddamn hard that nobody knows what they're doing and nobody there's no playbook. Yes. So as you can imagine, um, losing a child is, there's always, I think, going to be guilt and there's going to be shame and there's going to be all sorts of really challenging emotions to process and work through. Mm-hmm. And I hear this, I have a, I'm part of a grief circle of women who have lost children to, you know, chronic illness, suicide, different means, but we're all, we've all lost children. I'm really grateful. It's raw and it's hard. And I am like, I don't know if I could have survived it without the example of these other women who mostly are ahead of me on the journey. Now there's at least one who has joined since. And, but just hearing like the story and knowing you're not alone and knowing you're not doing it wrong, it really is this horrible and hard it just helps you hold on yeah yeah because you can I think you can almost if you're in it alone and you're not communicating with other people who've been in a similar situation or you don't know anybody who has or it feels so alone but then I think there's part of you that wonders if like your suffering is I don't know like do we do this thing where we're like is this the right amount of suffering am I like suffering too much? Am I supposed to be moving on now? Like, because I think people think you're supposed to move on. Yeah. Right. Like we've talked about this. It comes up a lot with Jen and I, but like, oh, it's been a year. So like move on. Everything's good now. Right. I'm like, uh, yeah. Even like with myself, when I was told I didn't have cancer anymore, like everyone thinks like you're better. And I'm like, no, 
I was a mental wreck, right? Just trying to process everything that had just happened. But people think you're just like, you're just supposed to move on. And then we wonder like, am I being dramatic? Should I be just like over this now? Like, I don't know. It's helpful. I think when you know that other people are also having a hard time and like, this is normal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Grieving is normal and grieving is hard. Yeah. The common humanity part of self-compassion. Yeah. And you know what I find also, it's not, for me, it's not only the recognition that I'm not doing it wrong. It's really this hard. It's also somehow that we're all also practicing allowing joy. We're all practicing allowing delight or happiness or excitement because that is critical. And it can be really hard to do when you're dealing with a loss of this magnitude. Yeah. So yeah, just having that companionship, even across, you know, the, the, the grief circle that I meet with there in Colorado, I'm the only Canadian, but um, COVID allowed me to join. That's great. I love that. Yeah. I have so much gratitude because I don't know if I could do this alone. Mm -hmm. Going back to the idea of practicing living with joy and embracing joy and and before we were recording, we were talking about how hard year two is. Um, that was really hard for me personally in year two, especially. Um, and I think, I, I don't have anything to say just other than that. That is like, I really understand how impossible and what that is as a practice, because it's not a given. I appreciate that you said that like as a practice, yeah. Shortly after I left my son, working online is interesting when you experience something like this because I choose to grieve out loud and to share part of the journey, Um, certainly not the fullness of it, but part of it with other people on purpose, you know, because I think we need to tell the truth about real life. And But sometimes the women would say things like just on Facebook where I got a lot of email and private, you know, message messages and, and they would, sometimes people would say, I would just die. I, I, I couldn't survive that. I would just die. And I was like, okay, honestly, I was like, what the fuck? Like I'm a mother who just lost her child. I just cremated my son's body. And Are you're you telling, telling me I should die. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> That's nice. Like, thank you. And some, like, honest to goodness, some of the messages I received, I won't, I do not want to share them here. I mostly, there's a lot of stuff I haven't even talked about because words don't help. Words just don't help. And if I can find words, if I can string together some words, I would like them to be mostly hopeful or like gentle guidance of some sort to help people to know better, like how to, how to support the somebody they love. But that example, you know, around now, around the year two mark, I'm, I think about that and I think, you know what, they're right. It is that impossible. It is impossible. It's impossible for me every day. And it's impossible for the women that I meet with in a grief circle every day. And my the conclusion I've come to so far on the journey is simply that we grow into the strength that we need. We grow into it. 
we don't have what I, I don't have what I need for tomorrow, but do I have, I can choose this breath, this hour, this day, and slowly it expands. And I can start thinking about weeks or even seasons without falling apart. And I, this has really, you know, I, I, I practiced mindfulness for years and, but this has been a teacher like no other. This is like graduate school, you know, so there's like theoretical knowledge and then there's like embodied lived experience. Mm -hmm. And the two are not the same. The two can both be useful together, but like they are not the same. And in a really deep, I guess I like the word embodied because that's how I feel it is like deeply rooted, like in my bones and my flesh is like this understanding that all I need is the strength for this conversation. I get to just be here with you fully present and I don't need yet to think about the next thing. And, and so anyways, that's how I imagine it. And so I, I feel like those women who express that, you know, who, while not a super graceful or compassionate response, I, I think, but they are right. You know, they didn't have a good filter, but they are right. It is impossible. And you think you're going to die. Like it kind of feels that painful. It is that painful. It is that horrible. It is that painful. And I think, um, yeah. So if there's anybody listening, it's like gather in your support system. There were times I, I just sent a text to a sister or a friend and they said, I am not okay, or I am drinking too much, or I would like to take a little pill and disappear. And, and I was just reaching out to say, like, grab hold of me, you know, through that, through texting, I just needed to be accountable and say, like, I'm not okay. And that was enough. Like, you know, they would probably just email me back one thing, but yeah, it's hard. And I really, really, really encourage anybody walking through this journey to gather in their support system. You need people. Even if you're like me and you are a strong introvert and you don't always, you don't want to be touched and you don't want people showing up your, at your door unannounced. You want people hugging you without consent. Like those things are messy and, but persist. You need people. Mm -hmm. This road is not one that you want to navigate alone. This is a theme that comes up again and again in these wonderful conversations we have with people is just the idea of community and the importance of community and finding that in whatever way that might be for you. Mm -hmm. um, but so many people, when we ask them things about, you know, what advice might you give or what did you find helpful? This idea of people yeah. comes up again and again. And, yeah. and for the people who know someone who has gone through something hard and traumatic, don't give up on them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do something. Like it came up in a conversation we had last night. Just do something. Mm -hmm. 
you know, even if you know they hate when you knock on their door, maybe knock on their door because you're worried about them. Yeah. I mean, for me, that wouldn't fly. Probably but, not, but, <laughs> but there are so many, um, Slip a note under the door. Yeah. Yeah. People who dropped muffins off at the door yeah. for me, um, you know, it was powerful that within hours, some of my brothers showed up and then two of my sisters took turns staying with us for a week at a time, making sure we were fed. I couldn't eat. I couldn't feed my daughters. Like, you know, if you lose an adult child, they have bank accounts and all these social media accounts and they have apartments and they have the work to do while you're dealing with coroner and RCMP and also all these things. I mean, it is, it's just stuff that you, I look back, I don't know how we did it. I, I don't, I'm not even ready, honestly, to really look back, like to, to look back too, too closely, but I know that, that we needed community care. In the last couple of years, there was this article going around. I don't know if you saw it, but it was focused on community care and how often we, you know, talk about self-care. And I mean, I'm a big believer in loving ourselves well and tending to ourselves in all sorts of ways. And also we need community care through social support systems and compassionate medical care and neighbors, you know, and just mm -hmm. all the things people, my son died by suicide, so insurance won't pay for a funeral. Um, and we had been in a car accident, a very traumatic car accident just three weeks before Jarris died. So we lost our vehicle. I couldn't work. I was injured. I'm still injured from it. And so we had to buy a car because he needed us. So we went into debt to buy a vehicle, to get back on the highway, to be attend to Jairus. And anyways, so it's, you know, it's right in the middle of crises where money is tightest and that's where you, you know, you're losing money or your can't work or whatever. So, you know, our community gathered and they paid for all, you know, our memorial service for him. Like that it's practical and it's so needed, right? Because it alleviates some of the stress. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, practice reaching out to each other in practical ways, like whether it's like take somebody's recycling to the depot or mow their lawn or like, I mean, ask, asking is good. Get permission. I, I had no idea we were going to go down this rabbit trail, but I, but I do think it's an important part of the conversation. And at least for me, it's helpful when people do just take action, but like in practical ways, not like, can I hug you? I think the difference is people dealing with grief is very uncomfortable and we're not very good at it mm -hmm. in North America, at least the kind of white European type cultures, right? The indigenous cultures that have their own traditions and around it and ceremony and at least, you know, some, like I'm not an expert, some there's a lot of discomfort. It's really hard to be with somebody in this pain that you can't fix. Because mm -hmm. we want to fix it. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to fix it is about you. It's selfish. It may not be intentionally selfish, but it is. It's about alleviating your pain and making you feel like you're doing something good. But actually it can cause harm and it can cause, it can push people away and, and shove them underground. And I think it's, it's, an, it's a, an aspect of emotional intelligence, really, to learn how to be in discomfort and not run, to just be with it and be with each other in the worst. 
and to recognize that there is no fixing it. So you don't have to find words. You don't have to know solutions. You can't fix that. You can't make it okay. There aren't words. There aren't solutions. Oh, exactly. You know, so yeah, you can drive kids to school and you can make meals and you can help just the survival process. That really is helpful, but don't try to fix, just be with. That's what I think is a, a hard thing. I, like I'm pretty, you know, I, I have compassion because I'm pretty sure that I've, I'm, I'm positive that I've said horrible, simplistic things to people when they were hurting in the past. Like I'm just positive because I'm human. And we don't know better. We're not taught better. It's not modeled for us growing up. We don't know what to say. Yeah. And so we do the, you know, the insincere, let me know if you need anything. And maybe it is sincere, but we just, I'm sorry for your loss. And like, or sometimes people really well-intentioned, I'm sure Jen, you probably experienced this, like the intention is there, but it just comes out so wrong. Yes. Because we, we don't know what to say. We're uncomfortable with someone else's pain. So then, you know, maybe that makes us say something wrong or not say anything at all because we just don't know. Like, and we're going to make, like, we just are. And I think we're all in progress. We don't know what we don't know. Like you said, we're all learning. We can, and everybody's different. So like, you might have one person need this and then you get it wrong with another person. So I think that's okay to just know we're going to get it wrong. And I think it's still good to try. But for me, the really, the biggest, biggest distinction or invitation I would offer to somebody else is you try to tell the truth. Am I doing this for me or am I doing this for them? Yes. And Mm -hmm. because I had people, for instance, come up to me and one of my daughters in the grocery store parking lot where I'm just like, it was so fresh. And I, and she tried to hug me and I said, no. And she got angry with me and she started arguing with me. You mean you don't even want me to hug? And I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I was like, I was like, lady. I wasn't a hugger before. Yeah. I'm like back away now and do not touch me ever without my consent, like ever. And especially when I just lost a child, like give me some space. Like, and again, this is me, but there, but it's, it's not really about the exact situation. It's about that. This was clearly about her needs. It wasn't about me at all. And even when I expressed what I needed, then she got angry. And by the the way, talk to me or look at me today. So clearly this was about their, their need to feel useful or something. And, And I don't have any animosity towards them because this is messy. It's messy business. I but will I, say like Jen is a hugger, so it's a little bit different, but I remember oh, I wouldn't have liked when, when Warren passed away, like I just wanted to hug her. Like I couldn't wait to see her to hug her. Yeah. So I can, I can empathize with why somebody wanted to hug you, but of course it depends on the relationship. It depends on what the other person wants. Like if you don't want to hug, then you should be able to say like, no, thank you. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and them not take that so personally. Yeah. My inner circle, they're allowed to hug me. My, 
and my sisters, <laughs> they can hug me. Like, but uh, it's a boundary. And, you know, honestly, yeah. it's just, also not that good at respecting people's boundaries no and if you don't want to hug that's up to you like you you can just say not right now just recognizing that really this is a one size this is not a one size fits all thing this is like you know we're we're just talking free range here yeah but I do like consent and honoring what the other person needs and and just noticing when you feel offense or you feel hurt or whatever and just remind yourself it isn't about you right now. It isn't about you. They're just trying to survive. They're trying to actually remember how to breathe again, right? And it's really for, like, it's okay for you to communicate what you do or do not need in that time. And it's not about the person you're, like, enforcing that boundary to for, like, or saying what you need to. It's about what you, the grieving person needs in that moment. And if if you care enough that you want to hug someone, then you should care enough to listen when they're telling you, I don't want to hug. Well, what they need, whatever it should be. Yeah. Another layer. And I guess this is interesting is like, we're also not a very trauma aware, trauma informed Mm. society. They were trauma illiterate all the time. That's yeah. Like, yeah. And so that's another layer that I know people don't understand, but you don't have to understand something to respect somebody's boundaries. And, mm-hmm. um, and when, like, I teach my children about consent. So I'm like, when grown adults can't handle the idea of somebody saying no to them, I think that's the problem. But the thing is too, is like, we had been through significant trauma, significant and some of the boundary violations that I experienced actually were the first times I had panic attacks after this all. And I ended up living with 17 months of PTSD and severe panic disorder, up to eight and 10 hours a day. So people don't know, under, and, I, and I'm not saying, like, I don't know if it would have happened regardless. It's very possible that it would have happened even if nobody ever sent me inappropriate messages. But my very first panic attack was one of these examples of a boundary violation. Of course, it wasn't willful, but it was, again, another example where it was very clear that they were trying to meet their own needs. They were trying to somehow alleviate their own pain and cause harm. Mm -hmm. And so that's another reason why I've chosen also to speak openly online about, you know, my journey in general, at least kind of the macro is because there, you know, if I'm experiencing this, that means there's a whole lot of people out there also experiencing it. And it is, it's hard. It is so hard to navigate. I think that we need to, if we talk more openly about it, we destigmatize, we remove shame. Mm -hmm. Um, We remember that we're just human in a messy world. There's so much stuff that we can't control. And we can be, you know, like in my case, I have beautiful friends and a loving family and enough money and work I love and all my basic needs are met and, and also significant trauma and PTSD Mm -hmm. and severe panic disorder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how I, I mentioned before that there can be like messages that feel shaming online when we oversimplify we take a really messy, like, let's say mental health. And we say, oh, you know, just use this essential oil or yeah, just get out and exercise more. Cause there's research that says, you know, a 20 minute walk a day is as good as, you know, um, an antidepressant or whatever. And it's like, 
And I love a good evidence base. And also let's remember that we're, we're not just one thing. This is multifactorial. We are complex beings. There's all these different contributing factors. There's racism. There's lack of access to medical care in some cases. There's food insecurity. There's, you know, countless issues, spiritual crises, all sorts of different things. And I, and I, I love conversations where we don't have to try to problem solve because like there's no real answer, but I love being able to just kind of hash things out and, mm-hmm. and, and be real about it, which is what you're doing. And that's why I said yes to this conversation. So. <laughs> um, well, that's great. We love that. I wanted to circle back because to my questions that I wrote down, because you said at the beginning that you have no capacity for bullshit or superficiality. And is this because I am like that? And it, it was exacerbated after my loss. And I'm just curious, personally, like, has that always been you or has it come about more since Jairus? Definitely after he died, I lost all ability. Like, it was like I was already somebody who didn't like it and just chose to opt out of places or relationships where it was about that for the most part. But I had still held on in some ways out of guilt, out of sense of loyalty. I had kind of stayed in certain relationships and alliance or allegiances or whatever, where I knew I shouldn't have stayed, but I did it anyway. And yeah, after Jairus died, it was like, there was nothing left in me for that. And I, I did end certain relationships and I did it in integrity and I knew it was the right thing and I have never regretted it but it it did take it was like that loss it was just like there's nothing left in me to I don't know how to explain it I I'm just assuming no kind of but it's just like I look at I I think that like I barely have the energy to get up and feed myself and it takes a a lot of energy to be fake it takes a lot of energy to like put on that face and to be, you know, superficial or to nod and smile along with something someone is saying. It, t- it actually takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And I think when you're in that place, like you don't have energy for that. That's not like you're, you're experiencing trauma. Your energy is there not now let me go put on my happy face and nod and smile or right like I when was someone... never really one who I am a pretty honest person and um yeah. and some of it in my case is that when you're in crises I'll speak for myself because I can't actually speak for other people so when we were in crises there were certain things I just didn't want anything else to I was just like we're just holding on everything is going towards keeping my son alive, affirming him, loving him, showing up for him. And I didn't want to rock the boat. So it felt safer to just stay and tolerate or whatever. And then all of a sudden he's gone. And I'm like, why would I now? Everything was about keeping him alive. And now he's gone. Like So all of those things that I was just like dealing with because it wasn't rocking the boat any further. I, I don't need that. I need to, I need to do that anymore. No, yeah. no. And I will say I've heard from other people who have gone through child loss that this is pretty common that a lot of times you lose relationships and sometimes some of your closest relationships. And 
you know, I, I think it's sad, but I think what's even more sad is betraying ourselves to stay in a relationship where we don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I really think that as women, and I was in a, grew up in a Christian environment and in an evangelical church. And so I can't speak to everybody's experience, but for me, I really believed that to be good meant almost this extra, like pouring yourself out until you're empty or like, and, and it's tricky because like, I, I was pretty boundaried. And also I think the problem was that I had equated that compassion means, I don't know, you give 80 million chances, you know, you, and, and it's like, and, and I, I just don't believe that. Like I, I just, but I, but I stayed there for too long and I have compassion for that. You know, I understand why I did that, but I don't remember the quote word for at all, but um, there is this Glennon Doyle quote and I, and I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be really any help because I do not remember her actual words, but I, what I, all, all I remember is that it was something about, I will never stay in a room or a relationship where I betray myself or something for belonging, yes. something like yes, that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I really found that very powerful. And of course, yeah, Brene Brown does a lot of work around this idea and I've certainly benefited from her work. But again, this would be an example for me of theory versus lived experience in a way where the death of my son just everything it's almost like a lot of this learning was sort of up here in me like I had done a lot of work over the years to kind of well maybe I'll say like I feel like sometimes we move it from head into heart and then he died and it was like boom, dropped into my body and now it was like I was living it I was living dissociating I was living violent shaking as my body tried to discharge energy. I was living things I read about and studied to serve my clients, but now it was living in my body, but also living in my body. I think a a real deep, deep, deep strength and deeply rooted Mm self-compassion. And even, because I feel like this is probably important for us to somehow meander over to the idea of joy, but even joy. And I would love if you're willing that, you know, to kind of chat a little bit about that, about the idea of allowing joy to live alongside grief and suffering. Love to talk about that. Yeah, I think that is 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 <laughs> not just going to allow it. <laughs> I think that's a really important idea. I did talk about in the beginning when I introduced you that you were a joyful living educator, mm-hmm. and we would definitely love to hear more about that and what that means. And yeah, I say like I'm a joyful living educator who writes a whole lot about pain and anxiety and. <laughs> hard life things. And there's a couple of reasons why, but one, because it's the reality of my life. Mm-hmm. I have lived in chronic pain. I have buried a lot of people that I love. I have suffered with suicidal ideation. I made, I tried to die three times when I was young. 
I have lived with intense anxiety. I have hated myself. I've wished myself away. And also I have learned to love and like who I am. And I have learned the gift of paradox or both and so that I can allow joy and delight to live alongside fear and pain in my life. I have learned to show up through fear to offer my small gifts to the world, even though I'm always afraid. (laughs) And so I offer that which I need, which I think a lot of people do, you know, in service oriented work, but also because I really believe that one of the great disservices in almost this like romantic comedy fairy tale-esque, it's almost like a mythology in our culture that we buy into or somehow are, um, I'm not sure if the word is inculcated, I'm not sure, but it's like we're, we absorb it or something from a really young age is that mythology or that idea that life should be happy all the time, like you said. And when I get married and when I have a house and when I have a decent car and you know, when this and that, then I'm going to be happy. And there's always a next, by the way. There's always a next. (laughs) Where in this story do we fit in the inevitable death? Like, does everybody stay alive forever? Or, you know, do you lose your pet? And do you lose your mom? And you get a a diagnosis in your body, you know, your health. And It's like we pretend, we pretend. And it is, it's so harmful because then every time one of us bumps up against the reality of life and it doesn't have to be big trauma, it can be your fridge broke and money's tight. It can be, um, you have some conflicts with one of your best friends. It can be, I don't know, you broke your ankle and you're really disappointed. And yet that is real life. And instead of allowing and making room for, we fight it, we resist it, we avoid it, we get angry at it, we judge ourselves. You know, it's, I work with women in the middle season of life. You know, the age range is fairly broad, but nonetheless, they kind of, they're somewhere in the middle season of life. And, um, this, it's just, it's like across the board. Like, I'm not sure that I ever work with any person who doesn't have to do this kind of wrestling and questioning and grappling to kind of come face to face with like this fairy tale ideal about like what life should be. And I should have it all together and I should never suffer and I should never feel overwhelmed and I should never have self-doubt and I shouldn't, you know, I should always know the exact right thing to how to parent my child. And, and we bump up against this reality and then we judge ourselves and we think we're doing it wrong. So it sounds so easy, right? Like it sounds like, yeah, of course that's true. And yet it, we don't live it. We don't live it. I agree. And so anyway, so then we shun what we call negative emotions. And so I don't believe in negative emotions. I believe in uncomfortable emotions. Um, yeah. And this isn't new. Like I've heard, you know, I'm gleaning from the wisdom of all these people who've come before me. I believe that all emotions are messengers. 
I believe that there's wisdom there. And I believe that one of the greatest signs of maturity and freedom is learning how to pause. So Viktor Frankl um, has this beautiful quote that I love. He talks about a massacre this too, but like something like um, between impulse and response, there is a space. And in that space lies your power to choose or something like that. And that speaks to me on a deep, deep level Mm -hmm. in that space. I get to examine the story that I'm believing in the moment. I get to feel whatever's coming up. I don't have to react. I don't have to respond according to instinct or my old patterning because I have agency and I have freedom to choose my path forward as long as I allow a breath, a little space. And I I believe that all when we allow all of the feelings i believe that's where we experience joy you know and again it's not new idea there's nothing new here you know i've heard people probably since i was really young say like you know if you shut down whatever emotion you also shut down joy like something like that and but i i live this and i believe it to be true that when we believe that we should be happy all the time, what we really do is we shut it all down because we need to protect ourselves. We have to armor up. We, um, we develop self-protective mechanisms and habits and to get our needs met and to feel safe and loved. And it really does require a little bit of loosening of the armor and a little bit of opening up just even a little bit, just dipping your toe over into these emotions that feel really big and hard and learning that you can trust yourself. You're strong Mm -hmm. enough to stay here and you will not die here. It feels like you will, but you won't. You can do this. And then you tip back over here into safety and then you come over here and you, you know, you just grow in self-trust and you enlarge your capacity to be with discomfort. And I really believe that that's where joy grows, like real joy, not fleeting happiness. I believe that's where we bear fruit right in the middle of the storm. Yeah, that was really powerful. (laughs) But I mean, in it, it makes sense what you're saying that when we just try to not a lot, like think we have to be happy all the time and we try to shut down those so-called negative feelings that we think they're out there because we put these labels on emotions instead of just saying they're emotions, mm-hmm. that you can become protectionist and you can therefore shut down all of the emotions, including the good ones, Mm -hmm. because you're trying to not feel the range of emotions that we have. Um, And the problem isn't the emotion. The problem is the vulnerability or the problem is the risk. And that's the problem. And, Mm -hmm. and so it's so scary. And, And I really think we need to bring compassion to it. Like we're not, this isn't about judging ourselves. It's like, of course we're afraid course mm-hmm. it's not like this is modeled to us well you know I didn't grow up in a home I grew up in a loving home but not a home where emotional vulnerability was modeled at all 
Oh, don't feel those big emotions. Those are, nobody wants to hear that. No. And yeah. And even though that was never really said to me, um, explicitly wasn't modeled. And then I didn't feel safe, you know, when, so I was hurting and I was, so, um, yeah, you're right. Like if it's not modeled for you, then how do you know to do it? And I think there's other subtle ways growing up that we can have our feelings shut down. I'm not trying to like throw my mother under the bus or whatever, but I distinctly remember being told I was being dramatic a Mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. And when I was being dramatic was often when I was expressing a strong emotion, Mm -hmm. whatever that emotion may be. Like, don't you think you're being a little dramatic? And it was said in a negative way. That's like, was shutting it down. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't think that I'm the only kid that ever had that said to them. Like, I just don't, Yeah, I think it's probably pretty pervasive. That well, we, for highly sensitive people, like I don't know if you are, but my yeah, my dad said that to me maybe only twice, but it was like it was like I never ever. I'm 50 years old, and I've never forgotten that he said that to me because just like you said, I was actually trying to ask for help and tell him that I wasn't okay, and he yeah. said shut me down. And again, I really huge respect for my mom and dad. So this isn't about like you said throwing anybody under the bus because believe me, like I know that. Like, I just expect that my kids will want therapy and I am willing to pay for it. I just like, there is not a chance on this earth that any of our kids are going to grow up without any kind of wounding. Of course they are. We oh, can do yeah. the best we can. And, and you know, so that's okay. <laughs> that's yeah. life. So I'd love to spin off of that because so something I'd love to talk about is this idea of feeling safe and at home in our bodies and our lives. And you know, you just said you feel safe when you feel heard. And so one of the ways that I would then kind of bring that into, you know, deep in the conversation, say with women in my membership or something would be like, so let's talk about friendship. Let's talk about you befriending yourself, right? So you feel safe when you feel heard. Are you listening to yourself? Are you giving a voice to your grief? Are you allowing those things you're experiencing to be heard? Or are you shoving them down, judging them as bad, running from them, numbing out, whatever, right? And no judgment around that either, because we all have coping mechanisms to get through this world sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, but it's, I think it's a valid question. It's like, yeah. if that's what would feel good to you and you would feel loved if your best friend listens right? Are you doing it? And of course, I'm not just like specifically asking you, Jen, I'm asking. I mean, I'll answer. (laughs) I think I'm the bomb. I'm my best friend. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Tell me more. But yeah, I mean, that idea that if that's what you are seeking in others, are you being that for yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think the answer is often no. I, I totally think so too. Or at times, at least it's a no. Oh, yeah, I mean, for everyone. It's, it's, it's been a no <laughs> for me. I think, you know, when you're in a home alone with two small boys, you need to be your own best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. For, you know, however many months we've been, we were locked down here. 
you're spending a lot of time with yourself so yeah. you better like her <laughs> yeah no but yeah. I, th- I don't I don't think I know a, a woman alive who hasn't said no to that question and maybe for most of their if life. they're being honest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and so that's what I hear in my work and in my work people are pretty darn honest because you won't last long in my circles if you know if you are, don't aren't open to that possibility, but you can be a lurker and you can be quieter and stuff for a while. But, um, but yeah, so I, so yeah, that, so are we listening to ourselves? Are we offering ourselves what we need? Are we telling the truth to ourselves? Are we befriending ourselves really and truly? And the answer is always going to be, you know, even as we do lots and lots of work, it's still going to be, well, yes, mostly, or yes, some of the time, or yes, imperfectly. Um, I'm, I'm personally very committed to living that way. And I, you know, I, I have blind spots and my girlfriend sometimes reminds me and I, um, you know, like we all need, and again, back to, we need each other, right? Because we can we lift each other up. And I love that. Just like my husband and I, you know, through this grief journey, it's like, um, there's days where I'm the one lifting and there's days that he's the one lifting and, um, it's, you know, that's what relationship really is about. So mm-hmm. it's that push and pull and, and having that person to lift you up when you can't lift yourself up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This work that you do, were you doing this before Jairus died or is this come about in your own personal journey? I started my business six years ago. Okay. And so yeah, I had already started. You were already doing this work. Yeah. So then that leads me to how did you do this work while you were going through those last few years in 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 crisis with him? Yeah. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. Was, and then was, and then and then after too. Like I I can't fathom. No, I don't know. But you I, but you still did. But you did it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking a few months ago, sometimes it helps me when I'm feeling really overwhelmed to write out a list of everything that I have been going through or I've gone through, because then it helps me witness my strength. Because it's really easy for me to forget that, holy crap, you're doing something that is so beyond hard. And, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of myself, but there are moments where I lose sight of the magnitude because I just think I should be able to do this, right? I have to be able to do this. And so I wrote out this list and I shocked myself. Got to be honest. I was like, oh my gosh, like, how did you do that? I don't know. So half of those years, three of the years of my business were in fact, you know, crises and loss. So the year that Jairus was really, essentially we were trying to keep him alive I think, you know, it's like you do what you have to do because I needed the money. So I I only work part-time anyway, but I, you know, just on a really basic level, we needed the income. When you have a child who's in trouble, you need to be able to support them. So it was an act of love, you know, and, um, and, but I think too, I think it, like when you're in crises, right? You just like you do the next right thing and you do the next right thing and you don't, you don't question it too much because, you know, I would open my, I would pour out my, 
I don't want to be overly dramatic, but <laughs> I, I feel like I would open my vein for my baby. Like I would, you know, I would. So, you know, so that's what you do. You're in survival mode and, um, and I'm pretty darn efficient. I am, I am capable. I am a capable person and I am used to working hard in life, like emotionally hard. And to be honest, I have found living hard for most of my life. So, um, walking through, like I said, like mental health struggles and everything. So I'm, used to that. And I've really built a lot of resilience and strength over the past decade. And and that I don't actually, I do not think I would be standing here if I hadn't done all of that hard, hard soul stretching work. After Jairus died though, I really cut almost everything to be honest. And a couple work colleagues, so to speak, like they work online in the simple living niche. um, They took over my Facebook page for my business and they ran it. Um, I don't even remember how long talk about practical, like that was huge. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Like I, I would have, um, but they did that for me, an incredible gift. And I had started my membership. It was three or four weeks before our car accident and, and another three weeks after that, Jairus died. So essentially right. like weeks after I started this brand new membership, we were just in chaos. And interestingly, so I am a very intuitive person, like a very gut led person. And I just, I kind of like hear things like deep inside. And I, I just knew that even though I was afraid, like it was time to start this community. And I had already been thinking about it a few years before, I think even two years or three years before I actually had started it, taking people's money and then panicked and gave their money back because <laughs> I was for real. Cause I really, fear is a common thing in my life and I, freedom is really important to me. And when I, I get afraid, like when I feel like my freedom is going to be restricted. So even I have a, I'm under contract to write a book and I, I panicked, like I get this book contract and I'm like, nope, don't want it. Cause I feel like trapped almost. So I sometimes have to pause, work through what's going on. Like, how can I say yes to this? Or what can I do to make me, you know, my body feel safe. So anyways, um, yeah. So I, I held on to the membership The I think about it. I'm like, it doesn't make sense on a logical level, but Um, that part of my work I gave up I believe that I gave up everything else like as soon as he died I was like I couldn't like I quit everything except my membership and that group of women as I was showing up to teach and love and serve them in the midst of crises but you know nonetheless I was doing that and I was doing it well you know they were it was a lifeline for me Mm-hmm. So, you know, because it remind because I, I will, I'm a truth teller. And so I will always walk my talk. And so I will never like lie. I will never say, oh yeah, I'm doing this thing and I'm not really doing the thing. So if I'm going to be teaching something, I'm going to be walking my talk. So it really served as this powerful lifeline. And the members were so compassionate. You know, I was having panic attacks. I was still doing interviews and having panic attacks in the middle of them and just keep going. And I was, um, and sometimes it was so severe that I couldn't show up, but 
it was just a beautiful example, I think, of brave community. And it's called the Brave and Beautiful Community. My goodness. Yeah. So I just sort of crawled along, crawled, and then, you know, and then I could kind of limp a little bit with a cane. And I'm slowly just sort of trying to come back, but I'm still really limited in my emotional and energetic capacity. Um, I, I can, Mm -hmm. I feel that. I feel that too. I do. do You resent it sometimes. Like I'm like, I just wish somehow, like, I know we can't rush grief and there's no, there's wisdom in grief and we have to allow. And also I'm like, I just sort of want to be able to jump ahead and like write a darn book. Like, but I don't have it in me right now. I don't actually, I'm going to have to push my um, time frame even for that because I just, I, you know, you don't know this journey until you're in it. And it's a lot harder and a lot longer than I ever could have imagined. Well, and so. it's not prescribed and you don't know what each day or each moment is going to bring. And, and, you know, you're doing it while also parenting, grieving children. And that, mm-hmm. that is the thing. I mean, your girls, I imagine, are older than than my children, so they presumably have a much better understanding, at least, of death. But there's, it's constantly like the grief is constantly coming up with them, and and it's triggering in a way for me that can send me on a wave, and it's this whole ebb and flow that I think it's learning to live with it and building your life so that you can ride those waves Mm -hmm. and maximize the time when you can. I don't know. That's where I'm at anyway. I, I, am not sure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Grief is unruly. We don't control trauma. We don't control grief and you're right. Like, and I'm very grateful that I have work that um, I've built it that very intentionally this way so that I do have flexibility. And part of that was because I have a child who, you know, was struggling and I want to remain responsive to my family's needs. Your, your community that you have, your job, um, could you just tell us a little bit about what that means to be a member, like what type of services you provide there? Sure. So yeah, the membership is one thread of my work. And um, so it is a group of maximum, I cap it at 60 women. And they they currently range from 30 to 69 years old, but they can self-select. I just say somewhere in the middle season of life, but most are kind of more like kind of that 40 to 60. Mm-hmm age range, but I love the diversity. Um, And we are all growing, learning and building what I call brave relationships with each other. So I offer educational content and coaching. So um, I create modules, we have weekly coaching calls and or community building calls where we just are sharing real life together. It doesn't have to always be about the work, you know, like, let's like, so, you know, things that I would um, regularly bring into the work would be, you know, um, building resilience, emotional literacy skills, um, learning how to practice self-compassion, 
um, you know, what does it mean to befriend yourself and, um, and why does it matter and what do we actually want and how do we walk it out and um, so yeah, there's an educational component, a community building component, and yeah, that's kind of it. So we yeah. run here, we have rest time. So for me, sustainable work is really important for my mind, body health. And so we work a certain number of weeks on, and then we rest and we take some weeks on and we rest. And I just kind of try to build a very, like, again, I walk my talk and I need breathing room in my life to survive. So I build it into this community as well. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. I think that's amazing that you, you know, you kind of have that foresight and that works for you, but I would think it also works for the members Mm -hmm. because we all kind of need those rest times, I think, think (laughs) in order for it to be sustainable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your, for your sharing, for your vulnerability. Your there wisdom. Are so many, your wisdom, yeah. There's so many like amazing nuggets that just I personally took from this conversation and I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's thank you so much. It's nice to meet you both. It was really nice great to, to well. meet you too, Krista. Thank you so much.